Our Father, we do recognize today that you are worthy of our worship and our praise. And as your people, we come before you today in worship. You you deserve our praise, our honor. You deserve that we would look up to you and remember who you are and what you've done. We, We remember today that you are the creator of heaven and earth. You spoke and it was done. We remember that you sustain us every day of our lives and that we live and move and have our, our very being because of you, that you, you are the one that, that keeps animating us every day. Father, how we thank you for what you provide for us in so many ways, our family, our friends, our work, Lord, our homes, Lord, all that we have here, just being able to live here in Central Florida. And Father, we honor you for all that you've given us. Mostly, though, Lord, today we come and we thank you for the fact that we belong to you and always will because of Jesus Christ. We thank you that your grace had us in mind that, Lord Jesus, when you went to the cross, it was us you were thinking about. And that when you gave up your life, you did so willingly and took it back up again that we might live. And so, Lord, today, as we look into your word, we pray that you would teach us, that you would further the steps of transformation that you want to bring into our lives. And, Lord, that you would enable us to meet you as we take communion today. We look forward to meeting you. Lord, you know us and you know what we bring into this room. You know the challenges, the stresses, the strains, the sins even, Lord. And so today we confess our sins before you. And we ask that, Lord, you would... uh, Forgive us so that we could just enjoy you and serve you more. Now we pray for the one who teaches that, Lord, you forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. Be the teacher and may we hear your voice today as we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, and even if you don't, we're going to put it up here, but if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews Chapter 11, as we conclude our series that we've been in for just the last three weeks, so this is the fourth week, Christians Unleashed, as we've been looking at what it's really, really like to be unleashed under the world and uh, set apart from the pack what difference we make, and that's what we've been talking about, looking at some of the core principles of of our church as we move into a new ministry year. Well, listen, what have we been talking about in this Christians Unleashed series? We've, you know, we've been talking about, first of all, our motivation. That we said in the first week, revolutionary motivation, that that when Christians were really understood that they were absolutely loved beyond a shadow of a doubt by the God of the universe, unconditionally accepted through Jesus Christ, that that motivation transformed their literal hearts and minds. They were different people. No longer were they in this legalistic world of fulfill the law in order to get God to accept them. All of the feasts and the festivals and the sins and the Pharisees had come up with 600 other laws that they couldn't violate on top of the Old Testament. And, uh, but when they understood they were accepted by God through faith in Christ alone because God loved them, it unleashed them into the world. And we said that in, that in that service, we said our motivation, who we are at the motivational level is one of the most crucial things to know about ourselves. What motivates you? Are you trying to get God to love you or do you know that he already does? Then we, 
went from there to the whole idea of revolutionary perspective where we looked at that, that basic, really difficult principle that the world doesn't accept, and that is that God owns everything. God owns everything, and we're his managers. We manage his property because we're his people. And so we said that God owns everything. I don't know. I wonder if this service is better than the first service. A little competition couldn't hurt. Do you think you can remember the basis upon which God owns everything? The first principle was he owns everything by right of creation. Oh, good. All right. Creation and providence and Redemption and, I don't want to put anybody on a spot over here. Greg, sovereignty. Oh, good, good. So God, God owns everything by right of the fact that he created it. And then he owns everything by right of the fact that he continues to make investments into it. He, is, he's the, he provides for us. And then he owns everything by right of the fact that he redeemed us from our sins and then because he's sovereign. And so we said that perspective can change you. And it leads to the third week. We looked at this whole idea of revolutionary generosity that Christians have always been amazingly generous people. They haven't been wealthy people. I mean, the first, the first Christians were poor, the poorest of the poor. But out of their liberality and generosity, they, they gave themselves, well, the, the three T's, the time, the treasures, the talents, they gave themselves first to God and then to other people, and they saw their lives not as a reservoir, how can I get more stuff and hoard it up, but how can I give it away? And so we said that those principles unleash them into the world. Well, today we're going to talk about revolutionary risk. And in the first week, I appealed to your heart. In the second week, I appealed uh, to your head, because talking about money in church gets us emotional. And so I said, we had to not talk, you know, kind of let's let me just talk to your head for a while. And then we talked to our feet last week about living life as generous people. Today, I want to appeal to your whole sense of adventure and risk and stepping out and doing something new with your life. Maybe making a commitment you haven't made before as you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, uh, one thing that I am absolutely committed to is this. When God calls us to follow him in his perspectives of life, he never makes mistakes. He's never saying, you know, this is a good way to live, but, you know, it might not work. He's saying this is the way to live. Uh, in all of these three revolutionary perspectives uh, of, of love motivation, of his, he is owning everything, and the generosity... Um, God never says, I made a mistake. Do you hear the story of the guy that was walking along the beach one day and he, he, uh, he heard this voice out of nowhere that said, dig. It was kind of a Steve Brown kind of voice, dig. So he stopped and he dug down under the sand. There's a little chest with a lock on it. And it, uh, he heard the voice said, open. So he found a rock and he broke open the, the rusty lock and inside it was just filled with gold. And then the... And then he was standing there not knowing what to do with this little chest of gold. And he heard the word casino. And there was a casino not far away, so he went to the casino. And then when he got in there, just walking in the door, he heard the word roulette. So he goes over the roulette table and he puts it down. He takes it all, gets the chips for it, puts it down. I don't know exactly how this works. I've never done it. And uh, uh, puts it all down there. One time, $5 I lost right away. Yeah, okay. 
Honesty is important. Uh, one time, one time. And uh, so he puts it all down there, and here's the number, 27. The guy puts the marble down there, spins that sucker, comes up 26. He hears the word, oops. <laughs> God never says, oops. He never says, you follow me and step out in the adventure to which I've called you. You do this stuff, but it might not be right. No, that's the safest place to be, is doing what God wants you to do. It's not the safest place to be. Well, even when we take adventures and step out to apply this stuff, it's the safest place to be. And you'll be making the right decision. However, I, and I want you to know this, when it comes to adventure and taking risks, I love it. Uh, I love it. I've got this. I love adventure. I love risk. I love to do new things. But I'll tell you one thing. I've got two things operating inside of me at the same time. The love of adventure and the fear of the risk. Always. I get ready to start out with this adventure. I plan on the adventure. I get ready to do it. And then I step out in faith and I step out to do that whatever it is. And the fear, fear starts rising up right here. It's just I start feeling it. Maybe you're like that too. Maybe you face, you want to be adventurous, you want to be risk-oriented, but fear also comes along, right? At that time. Let me tell you about a, a little, this summer vacation we, we, we took. I told you we went to Colorado and we climbed a 14er this year. Uh, there's my daughter, Jesse and Madeline Blakeman, and uh, we were climbing up this mountain. That's a Quandary Peak. Uh, a 14er, there's 54 mountains in Colorado that are over 14,000 feet. I've climbed one, I'd like to climb all 54. I'll never climb all 54, because they need ice axes for some of them and I'm not gonna do that, all right? So, I, but I was gonna climb this one and I decided I'd take my family with me, good idea. Nobody else has ever climbed a 14er, but it would be fun, family, activity. And, and so we start going up and it was great until we got above the tree line and then I'm looking up at that, peak way in the background, I'm saying, this might not have been such a good idea because I'm the only experienced hiker in the group. I got my son, my daughter, Maddie, Allie, and I'm thinking, this is a great adventure. Then the fear starts going, I made a mistake bringing them up here. And then you say, well, what was the risk? I'll tell you what the risk was. There, as I started thinking about it, all of them are younger than me. And I, I may have climbed more than them, but they're younger. And I'm thinking, what if the nausea and the headache control me? I'm a flatlander. I live in Florida. I've been here so long, you know, when I go to Mount Dora, I get dizzy. And, uh, and so I'm thinking, I'm, what if I get halfway up that mountain and I get the nausea and I have to bail out of this thing I will never live this down. <laughs> Did I bring enough water for everybody? I don't know how much I got to drink on the way. I'm thinking, oh, did I do this? And so I love the adventure, but I'm feeling the risk. And it was, and I want you to know it was I wasn't going to not do it. I mean, it would be very cold and a hot place for it back out of that situation. I was going forward whether I died doing it or not. And I wasn't going to tell them if I was sick or whatever, I was going. It was a great adventure. We got up to the top and cheered and taking pictures with everybody else up there. It was so great. 
And I only had a little headache, not a big headache. It was great. And on the way down, we saw this real happy couple on the way down. Um, and they were, they were right near the side of the road, right, right on the trail, on this trail right there. And you can't really see it, but on the other side of those two little rocks that they're standing on, it's a drop-off straight down. Mama and Papa Goat. Just like this. Now, I thought about risk and adventure, and I thought, they were made for standing on a precipice. It was, it was as if they were looking at each other and saying, hey, honey, you want to jump now? Let's go. Gallop down, gallop up. They could do it. They were made for that kind of risk and adventure. They were born for that, and you and I are born again, to live as people on the edge for risk, for adventure, as God defines it. We were made for that. We're made for it but, it's, it, but it's so challenging because sometimes we think even when it comes to all of the stuff that we want to do, should do for Jesus, that, you know, the adventure sounds good. Have you ever gone to a heard a really good sermon on committing yourself to Jesus or gone to a camp or heard it on the radio, you got to work and you said, yes, I am going to serve Jesus with my time, my treasures, my talents. Or it was a campfire and you threw the little chip in the campfire and you said, I'm going to serve him beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm going to do that. And then you actually commit to doing it and the fear rises in your throat. And you say, I made a mistake. No, you didn't. You made the right choice. Because we were made for that. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through 16. The Bible calls living, living in a risky kind of situation, it calls it living by faith. Here it is. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did, by faith, he was commended as a righteous man. When God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For because he was taken, he was commended as, as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called, you know, you, you read through this hall of fame of faith and you eventually start getting the point that God's people live by faith. Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going and he was about 85 years of age. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city. This is important. The city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. 
countless as the sand on the seashore, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is God's word. Now, when it becomes it comes to being the risk taker that you and I have been born again to be, let me just make a couple of brief points. The first one is that risk is generated by faith. And if we're going to step out there's a, in, into anything new, there is always the element of what we appear, what appears to be risk. You know, is this going to work? Am I going to survive? Um, but risk really is generated by, by faith. And it's important to understand as Christians that we are not just bored people who need something to do, and so we step out in faith. We're not those that uh, you know, need some religious extreme experience because we don't have anything to do. We don't take risks because of that. We do it because God has called us to live that way by faith. And so we step out. Now, what is, what is faith? Well, uh, faith, a great definition in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain for things we do not see. It's being certain of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. What is it that the Christian hopes for? What is it? You know, Jesus said in John 15, 15, something very powerful. He said, I call you friends. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know how his master, about his master's business. Instead, I called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And so, so Jesus has made known to us what God's working on on earth. And that's our hope. We hope for what God is doing on planet earth. Now, now listen to this. This is really important. Faith is not coming to God and saying, God, this is what I want you to do, and I trust that you'll do it. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I know you can. I know you can. I know you can. That's not faith. Faith is saying, God, what are you about? I believe that it will get done and you will do it partly through me. Saving faith is when we're forgiven of our sins. Living faith is this. This is how the Christian lives, by faith. What, what do we hope for? We hope for salvation because of Jesus Christ. What else do we hope for? We hope that people who are living around us, who are living in darkness and are, and are on the slippery slope into hell, they're, they're going to be rescued and God is going to do it, and he's going to use us as part of the process. That people in different countries around the world to which we send missionaries, they're going to hear the gospel for the very first time, and people are going to come into the kingdom of God because of the ministry of this church and the ministry of our missionaries. That's what God is working toward, and that's what we hope for and know that that will get 
done. That's what faith is. And that's what he's called us to do, to live by that kind, kind, kind of faith. And uh, how is that faith rewarded? And by the way, it is rewarded. Verses 2 and verses 6 tell us that faith is rewarded. And as you read this Hall of Fame of Faith, and I encourage you to do that later uh, today, read the rest of the chapter. It is so powerful. Um, these people, our forefathers in the faith did so much in a, in a unique way, and God bless them. Have you ever read the book, uh, and those of you who are into military things may have read this, Lone Survivor, Lone Survivor, Marcus Luttrell, was a part of uh, a Navy SEAL team who went into Afghanistan, dropped in in the early uh, morning hours in Afghanistan in a very extremely high mountain area. And they took up, uh, took up a site where they had, were going after an Al-Qaeda bad guy, a really bad guy. And as they were positioned early in the morning, some, some shepherds came over the hill toward them. And they made the fateful decision not to kill them. You say, well, why should they kill shepherds? Because the shepherds knew why they were there and who they were after, and they, and, and they knew they were going to tell on them, and they did. They betrayed their position, and it wasn't long before 150 Al-Qaeda were coming over that same ridge after these four Navy SEALs. And all but Marcus Luttrell were killed. Now, the book is a page-turner, and you can't put it down, but the thing you look at when you look at this guy is his patriotism and his commitment. It's not so much exactly the story and what went on, although the story is absolutely fascinating. At the end of the day, at the end of the book, you look at this guy and you say, this is amazing, your commitment to be willing to put yourself into that situation for our country. In Hebrews, he says, it's not so much the exploit of what they actually did. It's that they had faith. They were rewarded not for how big it was. And some of us look at the Billy Grahams of the world. We look at some of these evangelists and, and guys that, that the Lord uses in a powerful way. And we say, oh, I wish I could do that or be that impactful. And God said, it's not about the exploit in particular. It's about the faith that motivated it. All of us have the opportunity to be rewarded for faith. No matter what it is to be in the hall of fame uh, of faith. I suspect the question, how does God reward us, is, uh, well, he rewards us in so many ways as we step out in faith. One of the ways is simply by being in a foxhole with other Christians. You know, it's a great thing to serve Jesus Christ with other Christians to get home together in heaven one day, we're all gonna see the sacrifices that were made and we're gonna be sitting around telling war stories and we're gonna be rewarded. Does he have to? No, but he does. Where does faith come from? It's a gift. That, that, this is what blows me away. Faith is a gift that is given us Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, he gives you the gift of faith. You exercise the gift of faith. And then as you live a life of faith, then you get home one day and he rewards you. And he said, hey, I'm going to reward you for the gift that I gave you of faith and the things that I did through you. It's amazing. God's grace goes on and on and on and on. Risk is generated by faith. Always has been, always will. But notice, 
that risk is faith in action on earth. That's what, that's what we see in this, and I don't have time to go through this. This is Communion Sunday. But notice through believing in the, the creation of God, through Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, ladies, she is a hero for you guys. Uh, when we exercise, when we step out and risk, it's faith in action in all kinds of different situations. Whatever God is calling you to do, well, that's what it is. Risk is faith in action. But catch this thirdly and briefly. It's important to note that revolutionary risk is possible only with an eternal perspective. What it was that motivated these, well, all of God's people down through biblical history in the past was, was that they were stepping out in faith for what God wanted to be accomplished, knowing that if they didn't get it, it was okay because they were looking forward to heaven. Look at this, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they, what? When they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Abraham, Abraham looked ahead to the coming Messiah. Did, did, did he see the Messiah? No. Abraham looked forward to a country that would later become named after one of his sons, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Did he see the country? No, he didn't. He looked at it from afar. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of that country they had left, they could have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country a heavenly one. This is why some people seem to make a legacy impact that is so much greater than others because really what they're looking for is not for the name it, claim it, promise in this life. What they're looking for is the promises that God's going to provide for them in eternal life. That what really sets us free to leave a legacy in terms of our time, our treasures, our talents, all of that is, is, is when, when we're looking ahead to the true blessings of God given to us in eternity. Um, we're going to take communion in just a minute. And as I, as I read through again the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 34, where the Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We're Christians because Jesus had come for you on the cross. And if you were the only one, he still would have come. And if you were the only one, he still would have died and rose again. And when he was hanging spread eagle on cross beams, he had your name and your face in his mind. He didn't die for a nameless mass of humanity. He died for you. He knew those for whom he was coming. He said, I lay down my life 
for my sheep. And those who get that are able to say, then I, in turn, give you my life. I want you to have it all. They take that step of faith, which is risk, but they know it's the safest place to be. Even when the fear begins to rise, have I done the right thing? They know they have. How do I challenge us at the end of this series uh, as we think about this, this whole thing? I, 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 I guess I've given you the Reader's Digest version at the beginning of it. Uh, when we talked about the whole idea of God's love for you, and I know there's still some people here today who say, you don't know how bad I am. I don't. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what God has to forgive. I don't, but I know this, that if he could forgive the Apostle Paul, if he could forgive somebody like me, if he could forgive some of the people I know, he could forgive you. There is no sin so big that he can't forgive. And this might be the day where you are going to say, I'm going to step out based on, on the, I'm going to risk it today and say that I really, for the first time, understand that God does love me. And I don't have to prove myself. I'm going to stop living in a performance kind of mentality where I'm always trying to convince him that I'm good enough. Can we talk? You're not. I'm not. That's why Jesus went to the cross. For some of you, the biggest risk is to accept his acceptance of you. Do that today. As we've been going through some of this, some of you... Uh, the biggest risk is to understand, you understand God loves you, but you, to give him of your stuff and understand that he owns it all, your time, your treasures, your talents, that for you is that, you say, you gotta be kidding. You even want me to tithe. You're crazy. Yeah, and actually what we're trying to do is move our partakers in our ministry to our partners and move more partners into tithing so that we can do that. And some of you are saying, that is, okay, I understand it's biblical. I understand, Pete, you got to talk about these things. Um, but I don't want you to talk about these things. And I don't want to do this time, treasures, and talents thing. Uh, well, I know. I know this is tough. I know this is tough for some of you. But <clears throat> talking about finances like we have been, this is a reality. I'm a leader. And we've got to face the reality of our mission. Our mission is what it's all about. And I've got to, I've got to present this before you. And, uh, and I have got to take the risks that some of you aren't going to go home and mix up some anthrax for me today because I've been talking about finances for the past four weeks. I know some of you just hate this. But it's a time for us to seize the day and as a church, let God reorder all of us in the whole area of our finances too to move ahead and to say, I'm going to take that step and I'm going to move ahead. Uh, for, that's why we put this card in your, or going to give it to you as you walk out the door. We've made a decision as elders that we are no longer going to build budgets based on what we would like to come in. And we're going to, we're going to ask our people to step out in faith. And so when on you're on the way out of here, we're going to give you a pledge card uh, it's really a Willow Creek Church faith financial commitment. After prayerful consideration, I'm trusting God to provide a faith commitment for Willow Creek in 2008, 2009. No, don't, don't fill out for 2008, 2009. 
We want you to pray about this. We want you to step out in faith. We want some of you to go through those hair-raising experiences that we went through when we first started tithing too and saw that God comes through. But pray about that and bring it back on October 26th and we'll, uh, we'll see. And then we'll build a budget based on that. In the meantime, we want you to look at this, this 40 plus thing. You've seen those signs all over the church. 40 plus is here trying to get your attention to, to help you understand that, that really our stewardship team has figured it out that, um, that, that if all of us gives $40 a week more than we're giving now through the end of next year, we'll, we'll, we'll get us within our budget. We'll recover the shortfall of $450,000. It's better than $800 billion. Um, we'll get it done by the end of next year. We can do it. If all of us are a part of it, we, we can do it. And uh, for some of you, the big step of faith is going to be in the area of treasures. For some of you, it's going to be in the area of time. And you're not doing anything in ministry really to anybody. Your life is so tightly scheduled. You're not ministering really to anybody. And it's a struggle. And I understand that. I was sitting at the stoplight in California uh, when I was out visiting family this year, and I heard this on the radio about this lady whose grandson had been shot. He was a good kid, and he was on the way to visit her. Uh, he was about ready to go away to college. He was on the way to visit her, and some guys just drew up in a car next to him. They were gang members, and to get into the gang, you got to kill somebody, so they shot him. And so she now was on the radio being interviewed because what she was doing was she was going to schools talking about what she went through and how horrible it was. And the radio announcer said, ma'am, why do you do this? And she said, because when I help, I heal. When I help, I heal. She wanted to be used to be involved in other people's lives. I don't know where the big challenge for you will be this year, but uh, I invite you to risk, to get on the edge, to step out. Time, treasures, talents, I don't know where it is. Kirk Nowry wrote a book called uh, Revolutionary Generosity, from which I got the uh, title for the second sermon in this. Kirk Nowry is a good friend of John Maxwell of leadership fame. Many of you know the name John Maxwell, written a billion books on leadership. Well, Kirk Nowry and his wife Denise have raised their two kids, Ashley and Matthew, to step out in faith, to follow God, to live, to live on the edge, and so um, they were praying about some sort of uh, work that they could be a part of. And uh, Kirk had talked to a friend of his, Jerry Previo, and um, told him that his kids were looking for some place to invest their life. They just graduated from college. They wanted to do some ministry internationally where they could make an impact. So Jerry, their friend, uh, called their mutual friend, Franklin Graham, president of Samaritan's Purse. We've all heard of that. And, um, and told Franklin Graham that, Kirk's two kids were looking for a place for ministry. So he tells the story. He said, uh, late that night, about 12.30 a.m., I was startled awake by the phone ringing. Kirk, he said, this is Franklin. Hope I'm not calling too late. I heard about your kids, and I've had them on my heart. I have a little project I want to invite them to join me on. Could all of you come up here to talk about it? They live in South Florida. And he said, sure. So they... You know, a couple of days later, they uh, got on a plane, flew up, and they were in Franklin's office together at, up in North Carolina, where God lives. And uh, uh, they were having some, you know, the pleasantries and talking back and forth. 
But Franklin Graham got to it, got to it pretty quick. And he said, Ashley, Sudan is the most desperately needy country in the world. There's been a civil war there for decades, and the UN calls it the most dangerous place on earth. We have a field hospital near Darfur region, and we treat people there who've been shot, beaten, slashed with machetes, and tortured by Muslim forces from the north. There's also every kind of disease you can imagine, and if that wasn't bad enough, our hospital has been bombed seven times. These people are going through so, so much, and I think that when this kind of thing is happening, the first hand to reach out to people in need should be the hand of Jesus. We are that hand. Ashley, you're a talented nurse, and I want to invite you to join our team at the hospital in Louis. Kirk says, I don't know if there was any color left in my face. He said, I don't know about this. Shouldn't there be some sort of family power before they could talk? She said, Mr. Graham, my daddy trusts you, and we've always been taught to live by faith and make strong commitments. I believe God has prepared me for this, so sign me up. He said, sign me up? Well, there wasn't much time for discussion. He turns to Matthew. He says, Matthew, I, I want to talk to you about a tougher assignment. Tougher assignment? After a momentary pause, Franklin said, in southern Sudan, we have identified more than 200 churches that the radical Muslims have either bombed, burned, or looted. In many of the churches, they locked the people inside, tied the pastors to the doors, and burned them to the ground. He paused letting the picture form in our minds. Son, he said, I want you to go in and get the names and the stories of every pastor that has been killed. I want you to get the names of all the Christians who have been killed in all the churches that have been destroyed, and I want you to commit to leading the effort to build five churches for every one that has been destroyed and to raise up five pastors for every one who's been martyred. Jesus Christ will stand in the end. I looked at Matt and I thought, this is happening too fast. Matthew's exact words were, Mr. Graham, I can't let my sister make me look bad. <laughs> Sign me up. Sign me up. When God wants to get something impossible done, he calls his people and says, let's do the impossible. The book begins 18 months later as that same young man, Matthew, is standing in front of a banquet of Samaritan's Purse with Mr. Graham in the front seat. And he says, you know, I haven't had a chance to thank you for calling me to commitment, to risk my life. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. So I call you to risk something this year. It's the safest place to be in terms of your time, your treasures, your talents. It's the way revolutionary things get done because of Jesus. You take it to heart. Thanks for listening. And for more great audio, just click the audio button in the main menu of the app. That will connect you with the latest episodes of Key Life, Steve Brown, etc. And you think about that. Thank you.